0: I stole behind her in the boots and I touched her on the
1: this is our american stories and you're listening to Dan Fogelberg's same old ang sign and this is our story of the song segment and we're not going to tell the story of this song though it's a heck of a song and we tell stories of songs that have a story themselves And by the way, the opening lyrics of that song you just heard met my old lover in the grocery store. The snow is falling on Christmas Eve. You want to hear what happens, don't you? And we've all been there too, meeting that person that we broke up with, that person we went to school with, maybe wanting to avoid, maybe wanting to see. In a canon of personal songs, leader of the band stands out as one of Dan Fogelberg's most treasured. The song, which originally appeared on the singer-songwriter's 1981 album The Innocent Age, is Fogelberg's loving tribute to his musician father, Lawrence. Fogelberg wrote this in 2003 about his dad. He was a musician, an educator, and band leader. I was so gratified that I was able to give him that song before he passed on. Fogelberg's dad died in August of 1982, but not before this hit song, made him a celebrity with numerous media interviewers interested in him as its inspiration. Here's Dan Fogelberg speaking about his hit single Leader of the Band in 1991.
2: If I think I could only have written one song in my life, it would have been Leader of the Band. Because what that meant to my father and to me, there's no way I could quantify that or even explain it. Um... My father passed away over 10 years ago now and he he got to hear that song. He got to see this enjoy the success of that song. People were calling him on the phone and interviewing him in his last days. You know, who is this man, the leader of the band, you know? And he just he loved that and I loved that cuz I I respected him so much. I mean, he gave me everything I am really. My mother and he were both musicians and The idea of being a living legacy is really the truth. I don't think I'll ever be as accomplished a musician as he was. But um, I've had a different gift. It came to me in a different way. I've been able to reach and touch people with these songs that I write. And that one has probably touched more people more deeply than anything I've ever done.
1: And by the way, don't we all want to have our sons and or daughters speak that way about us? And again, that's why we do these stories, folks because you don't hear him anywhere else. Fogelberg's music was powerful in its simplicity. He didn't rely on the volume of his voice to convey his emotions. Instead, they came through in the soft, tender delivery and his amazing lyrics. Here, for example, is the chorus to leader of the band, in which Fogelberg cherishes and aspires to someday possess the same love and musical ability as his dad. And these are from the song, This is the Chorus. The leader of the band is tired and his eyes are growing old, but his blood runs through my instrument and his song is in my soul. My life has been a poor attempt to imitate the man. I'm just a living legacy to the leader of the band. Here's Dan Fogelberg's love letter to his father, Lawrence.
0: were meant for different work and his heart was known to none he left his own... fate he tried to be a soldier once but his music wouldn't wait he earned his love through discipline a thundering velvet hand his gentle means of sculpting souls took me years to understand
1: And the story of the song, Dan Fogelberg's tribute to his dad, Lawrence. The story of his song, Dan Fogelberg's story, his father's story, here on Our American Stories.
0: I thank you for the music and your stories of the road. I thank you for the freedom when it came my time to go. Thank you for the kindness and the times when you got tough And Papa, I don't think I said I love you near enough The leader of the band is tired and his eyes are growing old But his blood runs through my instrument and his song is in my soul my life has been a poor attempt to imitate the man. I'm just a living legacy to the leader of the band. I am a living legacy to the.
1: is our American stories and during this national emergency and businesses are being shut down and life as we know it is shut down here in this great country we've been looking for stories from you the listeners and from business owners across this great country to talk about what they're going through again during this really hard time for so many of us and now we hear from somebody who works in an entertainment industry.
3: I'm Ken Kendrick, uh, uh, managing partner of the Arizona Diamondbacks uh, Major League Baseball team. Well, currently, an official announcement has been made that we have, we MLB, on behalf of all the teams, have canceled our first two weeks of games. Uh, the opening of this season was scheduled to be March 26th, so we have actually canceled games through April 9. So the the goal of Major League Baseball is to play as many games as it makes sense to play, and right now, I don't think anyone could define what the proper number would be the The more the better from the standpoint of our economics uh, the economics of our players, the benefit of our fans and you know we're in a we're in an entertainment business, and so we want to bring as much entertainment as it makes sense based on you know when we can start playing. Until the point way later in the year when it doesn't make sense to be playing baseball outdoors, but frankly, while those things are fun and enjoyable and important, they are way less important than other things at this point. You know we're it's a fluid situation as it relates to our employee base. fortunately, uh most all the clubs are in the position economically where we can continue to pay all of our Non-uniformed personnel, and, uh, you know, we have kind of two categories. There are full-time staff, you know, in a normal club, the Diamondbacks being an example. There are some 350 full-time employees that don't wear the uniform. Uh, the ones that are most known are those who do. Uh, you know, our core employees are 12 month year employees. The baseball players are paid during the season, if you will. Well, right now, there is no season. Minor league players are not one, they're not covered by collective bargaining. And as is obvious, their paychecks are much, much smaller than their major league brothers. And uh, at the time this all has occurred, they're in the part of the year where they had reported for training, just like the major leaguers. During that period, prior to their season starting, they they get a stipend, uh, living expenses, if you will, during the period of training. And that's now been interrupted and, you know, they're in a place where they had an expectation and so we the Diamondbacks determined and we needed to support that group of young men as well. And now Major League Baseball has stepped up and we as a institution have built a plan where we we are going to pay a stipend all the clubs are now through May thirty one is the current plan. So they'll be receiving income from us to help with their expenses through the end of May. Now, I'm hopeful that prior to the end of May, they're going to be back in training and hopefully maybe in June begin to play games again, where then, you know, it will, you know, uh, normal circumstances will prevail. The third category, I've maybe gotten out of sequence, but the third category of employee that are game day employees, and those are, uh, you know, Generally, folks that work the ball games only for us—the ticket takers, the ushers, the guest services folks—and they're paid, uh, you know, on a per diem for the games that they work, and they're in a, a special category. Typically, uh, the folks, many of them, who work in in that setting are older and often retired, so the income from the games is a supplement to to their retirement income, and very important to many of them. To some, not so much, but many of them. And we, even though you know their payroll is really tied to the games they work, we recognize many of them are in need of that income, planned for that income, and now we're not going to be playing for some time. So we've already established a process to pay them, even though the games are not being played. Each team has committed a minimum of a million dollars to take care of that group of employees, and some some of us, we will be one. If need be, will invest in supporting those people more more than that, in order that they are compensated uh, and kept whole financially during a tough time. There's no, uh, you know that, and in, and in, in I think all we do in life, there there are legal obligations and moral obligations. This one is a moral one. Most of us who are are business people, and it's not certainly all, I think want to do the right thing, and to the degree that we can afford to do the right thing, we will, and in our case, we definitely will. Instincts tell you generally what the right thing to do is, and so long as we can possibly afford to do it, that's what we're going to do. I am kind of known among my friends to be the master of cliches, so uh and I have a number of them that that I can apply at different points and probably ad nauseum to some folks. But, you know, I, I feel like good leaders generally have the instincts to do the right thing. Great leaders are willing to do the right thing. I think when you're when you're in the window of time that we're in and you're living with the daily challenges that the virus is bringing both to our health of our country and then at the same time the waves of economic challenge that, that it is bringing, it, it really gives one pause for reflection. And if you're my age, you can look back on occasions where you know very significant challenges to our life and our well-being occurred to I me. Mean, I, I remember being a young business person, a much younger one than I am now, but an established business person in 87 when there was a severe economic meltdown in the uh, market. And I was actively in business, running a public company. Our stock, when I can remember it vividly, from $35 a share to $10 a share almost overnight. Not a thing to do with our performance, but we were in a economic crisis-driven and those uh, by a both oil and banking crisis. And that was a tough time to deal with. So I remember that very well. Of course, we all remember the financial meltdown in 08 and the dislocation to the real estate community and to the financial community and the stresses that that place, those were economic, very difficult economic times and lots of significant pressures that we all had to live through and we all came out the other side. This is the dual crisis that I've never personally been a part of, but I'm a real believer, you know, in the future. <laughs> and I believe I'm a believer that our capitalistic system is the best system ever devised known to man and that our capability of public private partnerships that that are now emerging for business and government to work together are going to you know, be a salvation to this setting and make it a lesser crisis than it might otherwise be. And I'm one to bet that we'll all come out the other side fairly soon in a strong, if not a stronger position than when we were, that we had when this all started not that very long ago. And because I think we're just so resilient and the unique capabilities that our system provides to entrepreneurial uh, businesses Small business is a big driver to, to the economy, and large business, of course, plays its part. And when all, all, all are working together, I think there's almost nothing that can be achieved. And you know, I guess we'll look back and see a year from now where where we are. But uh, I wouldn't bet. I wouldn't. Have bet, I wouldn't bet against uh, the USA. How's that?
1: And you've been listening to Ken Kendrick, the principal owner and managing general partner of the Arizona Diamondbacks. Don't bet against America, and it is so true. These times, we always rally, and to hear this small business, and yeah, Major League team is a small business, 350 employees, and they're stepping up and they're taking care of their people, and all around this great country, business owners are taking care of their people, and the government and the private industry are partnering together to get things done and get things done fast, and without our small business owners in particular, the lifeblood of this country... Nothing will be possible. Help is on the way for small business and Americans. What well, we're doing, what we always do well in a crisis. We're coming together. Uh, Democrats and Republicans sounding like adults. It's great to hear. Uh, very little sniping happening, and whoever's doing it, nobody likes you right now. So for a time, thank goodness, we're just pulling together and doing good things. We want to hear your story, small business owners rallying and what you're doing and how you're holding together so those jobs we count on to feed our families, pay our taxes, pay for the local schools, all of it. We want to hear your stories. You're the lifeblood of this great country. Send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org. We will play them. Ken Kendrick's story, a great and beautiful story about how we're dealing with a really tough virus, a real national emergency, here on Our American Stories. is our American stories and our next story well it's a bit of American history it's the story of Aaron Burr and you know him perhaps from your high school American history classes what little you may remember from them or maybe from the Broadway musical Hamilton because of course Aaron Burr was Hamilton's chief antagonist and boy what an antagonist he was as you're about to learn but who was Aaron Burr Well, Bill Breich is here to tell us a little bit more about the often reviled politician. Here's Bill.
4: Lin-Manuel Miranda, in his extraordinary Hamilton, an American musical, brilliantly captures Aaron Burr in three lines. The free advice he has Burr offer to Alexander Hamilton when they first meet in 1776. Talk less smile more. Don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. Around twilight on June 7, 1812, a 56-year-old man returned from six years self-imposed European exile. He landed New York, somewhere near today's South Street seaport. He hastened to a friend's house at 66 Water Street only to find no one at home. Only around midnight did he find a room, already occupied by five other men, in a plain house along a dark alley. In the morning, he returned to find his friend, Samuel Swartout, at home, and after an affectionate welcome, the Swartout brothers lodged him. The charm that had borne up throughout his life remained potent. A boyhood friend and longtime political opponent, Robert Troop, lent him ten dollars and a law library. Then, ten dollars was real money. Then, as now, a law library is essential to one's practice. He rented space at 9 Nassau Street. He took out some newspaper advertisements. He ordered a small tin sign, brightly lacquered, bearing his name, and tacked it to the outside wall. When he arrived to open his office on the morning of July 5, 1812, a line of clients awaited him. Hundreds more would follow. Within 12 days, his receipts totaled what was then a staggering $2,000. However, the inhabitants of New York viewed the man, Milton Lomask wrote. They had not forgotten the skills of the advocate. Thus, Aaron Burr, former colonel in the Army of the Revolution, former Attorney General of New York, former United States Senator, and former Vice President of the United States, resumed the practice of law. He had been born February 6, 1756, in Newark, New Jersey. He entered Princeton in the sophomore class at 13, took his degree with distinction at 16, and even spoke at commencement. He was elegant from youth, small, slender, broad-shouldered, and handsome. He had fine taste in clothes, to which dozens of unpaid tailors on two continents would attest. His manners were exquisite, his conversation never palled, and whether in the courtroom or the Senate, he spoke quietly and conversationally, without bombast or literary illusion. He strove to see things as they are, not as they ought to be, and possessed a massive savoir-faire, dexterity enough to conceal the truth without telling a lie, sagacity enough to read other people's countenances, and serenity enough not to let them discover anything by yours. He was also throughout his life much pursued by women, and they never had to run very far or very fast. He fought for American independence at Quebec, Brooklyn, and Morningside Heights. He was a lieutenant colonel at 22, wintered at Valley Forge, and had a horse shot from under him at Monmouth on June 28, 1778. That means he had gone in harm's way, for he might have been hit by the shot that killed his charger. Only one who has been thrown from a horse can understand what that means, the pains of having the wind knocked out of you, if not muscles sprained and bones broken. The man of pleasure once single-handedly suppressed a mutiny in his regiment. A ringleader leveled his musket at Burr, shouting, "'Now is the time, my brave boys!' The last syllable had barely left his lips when Burr, having drawn his sword, severed the man's arm just above the elbow. The regiment knew no more mutinies. During his service, he met Theodosia Prevost, the wife of a British officer serving in the West Indies. Burr later wrote that she possessed the truest heart, the ripest intellect, and the most winning manners of any woman he had ever met. She spoke French fluently, frequently quoted the Latin poets, and read avidly. Burr admired and wanted her. She responded with warmth and friendship. Her husband died in 1781. She married Burr the following year. Nothing so testifies to Theodosia Prevost's character, charm, and intelligence than that this sensual, cynical man was throughout their marriage her loving, faithful husband. More, though Burr was a feminist by instinct, he admired Mary Wollstonecraft's vindication of the rights of women and kept a print of Mrs. Wollstonecraft's portrait on his wall. His marriage made those beliefs heartfelt. He was among the first practical politicians, and Burr was nothing if not practical, to work for women's education on a par with men. It was a knowledge of your mind, he wrote to Theodosia, which first inspired me. The ideas which you have often heard me express in favor of female intellectual powers are founded on what I have seen in you. She died in 1794 after 12 years of marriage. He never ceased to mourn her. Perhaps their relationship was the noblest achievement of his life. In Hamilton, Burr is asked, If you stand for nothing, Burr, what will you fall for? Clearly, at least in his love for Theodosia, And his passion for human rights, he stood for something. In 1782, he was admitted to the New York Bar at the age of 26. He was elected to the legislature in 1784 at 28, where he fought to abolish slavery, and appointed attorney general in 1789 when he was 33. In 1791, he defeated Philip Schuyler, father-in-law of Alexander Hamilton, for the United States Senate. Thus the feud between Hamilton and Burr began. The new senator worked hard without taking politics seriously. For him, it was the pursuit of fun and honor and profit. This earned him the antipathy of Thomas Jefferson, who took politics almost as seriously as he did himself. To be fair, perhaps that is not entirely true. We know Jefferson had red hair in part because he preserved a letter addressed to him as you red-headed son of a... Yet the Virginian and Burr needed one another. Burr controlled the country's first mass party organization, the Society of St. Tammany. If Thomas Jefferson was the Democrats' first ideologue, Burr was their first mechanic. In 1800, the Jeffersonians nominated Senator Burr for vice president and his troubles began. Presidential electors then voted for two candidates without specifying a preference for president and for vice president. The candidate receiving the most votes became president. The second place candidate became vice president. Jefferson and Burr tied with 73 votes each. The election went to the House of Representatives. The Federalists, who detested Jefferson, sought to elect Burr instead. After 36 ballots, the House finally elected Jefferson president and Burr vice president. There is no evidence that Burr had plotted with the Federalists to win the presidency. Nonetheless, Jefferson, who always had a slight touch of paranoia, froze him out and withheld patronage from his followers. In April 1804, Burr, knowing Jefferson would not allow his renomination later that year, ran for governor of New York. Hamilton had come to hate Burr, and Hamilton's rage was reflected in his intensely personal campaigning which included indiscreet personal remarks reported in the newspapers. Burr was heavily defeated. Burr seized upon correspondence published in the Albany Register. Dr. Charles Cooper wrote, General Hamilton and Judge Kent have declared in substance that they looked upon Mr. Burr to be a dangerous man, and I could detail to you a still more despicable opinion which General Hamilton has expressed of Burr. Burr? requested an acknowledgment or denial of the still more despicable opinion of himself attributed to Hamilton. Two days later, Hamilton replied with a lengthy dissertation on the meaning of despicable. Burr responded, The common sense of mankind affixed to the word the idea of dishonor. He then demanded Hamilton generally disavow any intention to convey impressions derogatory to the honor of Mr. Burr. Hamilton was trapped. This would have meant denying a great deal of his political conversations, speeches, and correspondence over two decades. Hamilton now feebly offered that he could not recall using any term that would justify Dr. Cooper's construction. Burr again demanded a disclaimer. Hamilton refused. On June 27, 1804, Burr challenged, and Hamilton accepted. On Wednesday, July 11th, 1804, at 7 a.m., the two men stood ten paces apart on the Weehawken shore in New Jersey, pistols in hand. Hamilton, perhaps a second before his opponent, fired into the air. Burr shot true. He was indicted for murder in New York and in New Jersey. While his lawyers and friends worked to quash the indictments, he returned to Washington, D.C., where he resumed his duties as vice president. On March second, eighteen o five, his last day in public office, Burr rose from the chair. He stood before a hall of professional politicians familiar with every rhetorical device, many of whom hated him. Without changing his customary conversational tone, he spoke briefly of the United States and the Senate itself. The Senate, he said, is a sanctuary, a citadel of law, of order, and of liberty. And it is here, it is here in this exalted refuge, here, if anywhere, will resistance be made to the storms of political frenzy and the silent arts of corruption. And if the Constitution be destined ever to perish by the sacrilegious hands of the demagogue or the usurper, which God avert, its expiring agonies will be witnessed on this floor. Then, having spoken for once from the heart, he stepped down walked across the chamber, and went out the door. He was only 49 years old. Behind him, the Senate sat in silence. Senator Samuel Mitchell of New York wrote, My colleague General Smith, stout and manly as he is, wept as profusely as I did. He did not recover for a quarter of an hour. Even before leaving office, Burr had begun a conspiracy. Precisely what Burr planned remains a mystery, a puzzle, a lock without a key. He told his first biographer, Matthew L. Davis, the scheme he called X was intended to revolutionize Mexico and settle some lands he had in Texas. Perhaps it was. But the legends remain, and the papers tantalize. The maps of New Orleans, Veracruz, and the roads to Mexico City, and the correspondence hinting he would not liberate but seize Mexico, draw the western states from the Union, and combining them into one nation, stand at the throne of the Aztecs and crown himself Emperor of the West. The gods invite us to glory and fortune, Burr wrote to his co-conspirator, General James Wilkinson, then General-in-Chief of the United States Army. John Randolph of Roanoke, most ferocious of politicians, called Wilkinson the mammoth of iniquity, the only man I ever saw who was from the bark to the very core a villain. Wilkinson, whose self-designed uniforms, encrusted with gold braid and frogging, failed to conceal his enormous girth. He was, as we now know, a paid agent of Spain, a man on the take. At some point, Wilkinson ratted out Burr to Jefferson. On November 27, 1806, Jefferson issued a proclamation that led to the collapse of the plot, Burr's arrest, and Burr's indictment for treason by levying war against the United States. Wilkinson was not the subject of prosecution, though we now know that Jefferson, too, knew Wilkinson was taking money from the Spanish Perhaps Wilkinson knew too much in an age not yet so cruel as to eliminate those who knew too much. Burr was tried in Richmond, Virginia, before Chief Justice John Marshall, Jefferson's third cousin. Uh, The cousins detested one another. The prosecutor insinuated that Marshall would be impeached if he did not rule for the prosecution on the evidentiary motions. Marshall noted the threat in his decision. He also noted the Constitution requires treason to be proven by the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act of treason. Of the dozens of witnesses presented by the government, none had testified to an overt act. Marshall then excluded all evidence presented by the government as merely corroborative and incompetent. Within 25 minutes, the jury found Burr not guilty. Now, in a self-imposed exercise in discretion, Burr left for Europe. At first, Burr sought financial support for X from the British and then the French. Nothing came of it. From the exile's beginning, Burr recorded his experiences in his private journal. Perhaps its saddest revelations are that this vital, charming man was so easily bored. Yet, as Lomasque writes... There was a limit to how many parties he could attend, how many ceremonies he could watch, how many books he could read, how many bright and articulate people he could draw within the radiant circle of his charm. He devoted his energies to fornication, with prostitutes if necessary, and other women when possible. Lomasque notes he described his amatory encounters as muse, a French hunting term meaning the beginning of the rutting season in animals, This suggests that he despised himself for treating sex in this way. Yet some principles remained uncompromised despite boredom and the lack of money. He never descended to drinking cheap wine. After his return to the United States, he only dabbled in politics. In 1812, he was pulling strings for an unknown man in the West named Andrew Jackson, who will do credit to a commission in the army if conferred upon him. When Jackson became president in 1829, Samuel Swartout, whose hospitality Burr had enjoyed on his return from exile, was appointed collector of the Port of New York with Burr's help. As M. R. Werner relates in his history of Tammany Hall, Swartout later hurried to Europe when his accounts showed that he had borrowed from the government's funds the sum of $1,225,705.69. The public, with that charming levity that has always characterized its attitude toward wholesale plunder, made the best of a bad situation by coining a new term. When a man put the government's money into his own pocket, it was said he had swore out it. In 1833, Burr married Eliza Jumel, perhaps the richest American woman of the time. She had, after what may have been the most successful career of her age as shall we say, a working girl, married an extremely wealthy man. By the time she married Burr, Madame Jumel was a widow. Burr probably married her for her money. Within the year, she began divorce proceedings on the grounds of adultery, a remarkable, even heartening accusation against a man of 78. On September 14, 1836, the day on which the decree of divorce from Madame Jumel was entered by the court, Aaron Burr died in a second-floor room at Winant's Inn, 2040 Richmond Terrace in Port Richmond, Staten Island. Two days later, he was buried beside his father and grandfather in Princeton, New Jersey. Lomask wrote, For nearly 20 years, the grave went unmarked. Then a relative arranged for the installation of a simple marble slab. In 1995 the Aaron Burr Association placed a bronze plaque on the grave that recites his services to the Republic.
1: And great job on that by Robbie, our producer, and Bill Breik. He's the storyteller. Now, you're wondering, who is Bill Breik? Well, he reminds me of my dad. My dad taught history, became a superintendent at schools, and never, ever wrote history, but knew it. And Bill Breich is one of those guys, and there are so many of you out in this country who love your country, know as much as any historian, actually, frankly, maybe more. And so we thank Bill Breich for this contribution. He's got quite a number coming. has already given us quite a number as well. Thanks to Bill Breich for this story. Aaron Burr's story, here on Our American story. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything. And one of the most intriguing stories that I've come across in a long time was captured by Brantley Hargrove, who's a journalist and has written for Wired, Popular Mechanics, and Texas Monthly. We talked with Brantley about his book, The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of the Legendary Tornado Chaser, Tim Samaras. Yeah, you know, Tim
5: was just this uh, middle-class kid from the suburbs of Denver. He grew up uh, in this little bungalow in Lakewood, Colorado. And, uh, you know, I mean, he was kind of an unusual kid in some ways. Um, you know, most kids are playing with, you know, action figures or whatever. He was uh, taking apart his parents' appliances. Uh, I mean, he, he for some reason, he just really liked to take apart the blender. Or the television set, uh, just to figure out what made them go. I mean, he just, he simply couldn't take for granted the fact that they actually worked. He had, he had this innate curiosity. Uh, and so, you know, his dad just, just to keep, you know, keep him away from their appliances. Uh, he actually went out into the, out into the neighborhood, out into the, you know, sort of the outlying community and, uh, would pick up like these old radios, these big, you know, radios with the, the dials on them. And, uh, he'd bring them back to Tim just to give him something to tinker with. And, uh, Tim would. Uh, he sometimes he'd fix them. I mean, if they weren't working, so, I mean he had this he had this natural gift for uh, figuring out what was wrong with a piece of equipment, electronics, and uh, putting it back together again.
1: Well, I love the title of chapter two: A Boy with an Engineer's Mind. But he also had an imagination too, and a movie really struck him. And maybe in the end, uh, this is Brantley what led him to his obsession with storm chasing. Talk about the Wizard of Oz
5: you know, he's probably six years old, uh, Wizard of Oz was, was on primetime, it was a Sunday evening, and his parents drug the dining room table into the living room and served dinner in there, and uh, that's where Tim saw the Wizard of Oz for the first time, and uh, I mean, he was, once that tornado started churning toward Dorothy and Toto, he was completely transfixed by the image on screen, he just couldn't believe it, um, just this, this image of, of power, and uh, you know, the, the rest of the film really didn't didn't interest him all that much he'd get kind of bored once they started hitting the yellow brick road but uh you know forevermore he would be he'd be drawn to that that image and you know he he couldn't believe that there was there were such things near his home and he wanted to wanted to see one for himself someday
1: yeah and it's interesting Colorado's where storms set up as they head into the great plains uh talk about how that impacted him too just where he lived his the geography and how that might have factored into things
5: Right, well yeah he was he's, he's in he's in near Denver so it's uh, he's got he's got these storms coming up against the Rockies um, you know these, these these occasionally violent thunderstorms that are known to produce tornadoes and so he was in a he was in a, in a, a region in an environment uh, where he could see such things I mean he did he, you know when he was uh, he was a young kid he saw his first first funnel cloud in the sky so I mean that that, that sort of just uh, ignited even further this fire that had first begun uh, with The Wizard of Oz.
1: Indeed. Now, he's not your typical high school grad. A lot of kids go to college. But Tim, well, he starts knocking on the door of the Denver Research Institute, and they want him to get a resume together. And my goodness, your writing about this is fabulous. And it reminds me of the Wright Brothers, because uh, David McCullough's book about the Wright Brothers, you know, here are all these PhDs and scientists trying to get up into into the air. And these two bicycle mechanics are, well, they're they're sort of playing around and goofing off. Uh, with their own wind tunnels that they created themselves, and then out in Kitty Hawk, talk about that application! What chutzpah it took for a kid to try and get a job at one of the top research science facilities in America?
5: Yeah, I mean it, 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 it's 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 amazing chutzpah. Uh, you know he's 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 walking into uh, the Denver Research Institute, which is a an applied uh, an, an applied science outfit. They do all sorts of explosives work for the military, and basically these. These guys are just geeks who use really um, high tech, research grade electronics to study all sorts of violent forces, among other things. And so Tim walks in, you know, he's, he's I think he's 20 or 21, uh, you know, walking in with uh, holes in his jeans and, and a t shirt. You know, does he doesn't even bring in his own resume? I mean, I don't think he'd ever drawn one up. Uh, and so you know, he gets talking to the guy who runs runs the outfit, Larry Brown. And, um, you know, I mean, Larry Brown can see this, this guy is clearly conversant. Um, but you know, maybe not even the most uh, qualified person uh, that he's talked to for this job. And so he's like, all right, Tim, well, you know, this is interesting, but why don't you come back with a resume? And so Tim does. And, uh, you know, it's, it's this yellow sheet of paper onto which he's handwritten his um, his, his expertise, which includes working uh, at a mom and pop radio repair shop. So, I mean, it's not a whole lot there. But yeah, I mean, Larry goes with his gut. He likes Tim. He he sees that Tim has a natural ability, and he seems pretty cool too. So he's like, "All right, I'm going to give this kid a chance." And he does. And uh, you know, I mean, by by the time Tim is uh, you know 20 years old, he's he's got a a Pentagon security clearance.
1: It's amazing. It's amazing. By the way, no college education. No college education, but a guy like Brown who trusted his gut instincts. I mean, you got to you got to give him credit. A lot of people would have said, "No paper, no credentials, no job."
5: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, Brown, Brown saw something in Tim that was, I think, harder to quantify.
1: Indeed. I love the chapter's title, This Love Affair with the Sky, because in the end, this is what happens with Tim. You write, quote, he begins to tackle tornadoes in the methodical way he does everything else. He studies them, figures out how they work, just as he did many years before with his mom's blender. Self-taught all the way, wasn't this man?
5: Yeah, he completely was. I mean, this is this is sort of a pattern that's been set up since he was a, a kid. You know, he's like, this interests me. I'm going to figure out everything I can about it, uh, largely by myself. And that's what he did. I mean, you know, it, it, except for, uh, you know, I think this is probably the first time he ever actually enjoyed sitting in a classroom. He did take a storm spotting course and, you know, some basic meteorology through uh, Skywarn, which uh, partners with the National Weather Service. But by, by and large, he was, you know, he was teaching himself. He was reading, you know, everything he could and, uh, you know, trying to figure out, okay, how do I go out myself and find these storms? And, and how can I make myself of use to the National Weather Service? I mean, he was also one of their spotters. So he'd be the guy out there giving them the on-the-ground intelligence about what actually is happening. Because, you know, uh, uh, radar can tell us that there is a, a, a storm that, you know, has some evidence of tornado rotation, but it can't necessarily tell you the tornado on the ground. And Tim would be the guy who'd be out there in the field with eyes on the storm telling them, you know, in fact, there is a tornado or there isn't one.
1: When we return, more with Brantley Hargrove, who's written so beautifully about the life and death of storm chaser Tim Samaras. This is Our American Stories. Hargrove, author of The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser, Tim Samaras. We were talking about the virtually non-existent state of tornado science leading up to the time when Samaras and a small band of researchers started looking at this force of nature.
5: Tornadoes were so inexplicable, um, so poorly understood, that uh, you know, uh, atmospheric scientists, uh, meteorologists, you know, the government was just like, "Hey, look, let's let's we can't even bother with trying to predict these things. There's no point in warning people about the possibility of tornadoes if we have really no ability to uh, predict where they're going to occur and when, with any kind of specificity." And so, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, with, with the uh, you know the Signal Services, the Army Signal Services, which is you know initially in charge of uh, you know national weather forecasting, and then the Weather Bureau. I mean, it was just it, it was it was the word you didn't really utter. And so, I mean, we didn't even really start making, uh, you know, any kinds of tornado forecasts until, you know, into the 1950s. I mean, it's kind of remarkable when you think about it. We just we just did not understand them well enough to predict them. Um, and so, you know, up through, up through uh, you know, whenever Tim kind of arrives on the scene and, and begins his own research, uh, you know, we, we had come a long way, but there were still, you know, there were still a lot of, of unanswered questions. I mean, we had just developed... <clears throat> in the 70s, you know, the 60s and 70s Doppler radar. And then mobile Doppler didn't even come onto the scene until uh, the 90s, which would allow us to scan at, you know, somewhat close range uh, these tornadoes in, in detail. And so we, were ju- we just had this really essential tool come on the scene. Uh, and we're, and we're, you know, we're learning quite a bit. However, I mean, there, the mobile radar, even even when you can drag it out into close proximity with the storm, it, it, it left some blind spots. Uh, it couldn't scan in that lowest, you know, fifty meters or so, uh, and that's a that's a pretty crucial a pretty crucial spot. I mean, that's where you know that, that's where these winds, um, you know, it's where they begin to coalesce. I mean, you know, how can you how can you predict them if you can't understand how the low level environment is is connected to the broader storm environment? And so that was kind of one place that where Tim was hoping he could fill in the blanks was that this low level environment, you know, was essentially terra incognita. We knew nothing about it. We had no we had no data, no measurements from it.
1: The chapter, The Spark, there's a man who named Frank Tatum uh, from Huntsville, Alabama. And people may not know this about Huntsville, but it's one of the great science research uh, spots in the whole country. Uh, Talk about the role that Frank played in young Tim's life.
5: Yeah, Frank was was the spark in my opinion. Um, you know, he was uh, he was this um explosives expert. Uh, in there in Huntsville and you know, back in 89, Huntsville got hit by a, a really violent tornado. You know, it, it killed uh, I think a couple dozen people. And uh, you know, in the aftermath, he heard a lot of weird things that sort of struck him. Uh and and were in some ways, you know, uh they related to his his own research. You know, he was hearing that there were all these people who were, uh, you know, they were feeling these tremors through the ground as the tornado approached. Uh, and I mean, these weren't yahoos who were saying this was like the emergency manager. It was like a preacher who was in the basement sheltering with, you know, some people from his congregation. Were saying, yeah, I felt these, I felt these tremors coming through the ground. And so he's like, OK, I mean, could a tornado measurably transfer energy into the ground to the extent that you know, you'd actually create some kind of shockwave? And uh, what he found, you know, whenever he went to a, a USGS, um, you know, Geological Service uh, uh, site where they had some, um, you know, they had some geophones in the ground, you know, he found out that they actually did. There were actually seismic signals being created by these tornadoes. And so he set out to uh, uh, build this device um, with federal funding uh, that he hoped would be, uh, you know, would serve as an early warning network. He would he would use it to detect seismic signals uh, of tornadoes. Uh, you know, and, and to give, you know, maybe a little bit better of a, an advance heads up. Uh, and so he di- he built these devices. But, you know, Frank was not a storm chaser. He didn't really know how to go find tornadoes and, you know, put these, you know, somewhere near the path so that they could, you know, either pick up or not pick up on these uh, these seismic signals. And so he, he started reaching out to all these storm chasers that he'd heard about throughout the U.S. And Tim's was one of those names who came up as, you know, kind of one of these prominent or sort of, legendary storm chasers.
1: Yep, and Tatum asked him from your book, "Quote: Can you get my invention close to a tornado? Can you help me find out if it actually works?" That's quite a thing to ask a guy, isn't
4: it? (laughs) Well,
5: I mean, if if he knew Tim, he would know that was a question. It was almost as if he'd been waiting his whole life to be asked. I mean, you know, Tim had been he'd seen this uh, this Nova documentary on PBS a few you know a decade before, I think. Um, where these uh, where these scientists from the National Severe Storm Laboratories and Oklahoma University were were you know going out chasing down these tornadoes with this you know with this instrument that they developed um, called the Totable Tornado Observatory. They were trying to deploy this instrument to get these to get these long sought after measurements from the core of a tornado, and, and they weren't successful. But I mean, Tim had been captivated by this by this documentary, by the, you know this idea of these scientists going out chasing tornadoes down, and so what Tatum was offering him was a mission that sounded a whole lot like what these scientists had done. And so, I mean, he couldn't say no.
1: Tim is not happy with the, the, the probes that have been created. So in the end he creates this thing himself called the turtle probe. Talk about the turtle probe, Tim's invention.
5: Right. Well, the turtle probe was, um, uh, quite different from everything that had preceded it. Um, you know, a lot of the previous inventions, uh, you know, None of which managed to get into the core of a tornado. You know, not a lot of attention was paid to uh, you know the, the aerodynamic profile, and you know up to that point it hadn't mattered because they hadn't gotten into a place where that would where that would be of, of utmost importance. And, and Tim did pay a great deal of attention to its aerodynamic profile. He he he, he conceived this device whose 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 profile was inspired actually by a previous um, a previous instrument that had been devised by, you know, another guy at uh, Applied Research Associates, where he was now working. Uh, It was an intercontinental ballistic missile launch vehicle that was supposed to be able to withstand a nuclear shockwave. And what Tim did is he he took those plans and he he scaled down and adapted uh, to his his use. Uh, So he built this thing that, you know, okay, if it can survive a nuclear shockwave, surely it'll be okay in a tornado. And so he, he built this device it was about you know 20 inches across, about six inches tall, you know sort of conical in shape, kind of like a like a, a Vietnamese uh, a traditional Vietnamese hat uh, and it was filled with um, you know pressure transducers sensors for temperature and humidity and this and a data logger that were core measurements from all these sensors uh, ten times per second and it was it was you know it was to that point it was uh, one of the most aerodynamically and just, you know, in terms of the instrumentation, the most advanced uh, in-situ probe that had ever been devised.
1: And the problem now is, as you put it in the book, the easy part was making the device, which, by the way, is not easy, but the hard part is getting a a tornado to go over that device. That's no duck walk, and that's dangerous work. Uh, Talk about uh, Tim's attitude about that. Again, he was no daredevil, but he knew to get this probe placed in the right places meant... Taking bigger and more profound risks with his life.
5: Sure. Well, you know, finding tornadoes to begin with is 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 difficult. Uh, You know, Tim Tim was well well acquainted with that struggle. I mean, you know, you for every every tornado you see, you strike out on probably at least five other uh, events. Um, So yeah, first of all, he's dealing with that, just the difficulty in finding these things. Uh, Then there's the difficulty if you do of maneuvering ahead of them so you've got to position yourself in such a way that you'll be able to stay you know probably roughly to the north and slightly ahead of the tornadoes It's moving uh, to be able to drop down front and intercept Uh, so you know to add to all this uh, he also knew that if he's going to deploy this thing into the core he's gonna have to get in front of the tornado I mean even more even in a more extreme position than he'd been in uh, with Frank Tatum's uh, instrument. He's going to have to wait until the tornado is really close because tornadoes, they swerve. I mean, they, they, don't, they don't travel in a straight line. There are all sorts of little d- uh, bobs and weaves in their tracks. And so that means he has to get really, really close, probably closer than anybody has really ever gotten um, and survived uh, to deploy this thing. This mission that he's taken on is, uh, is far more dangerous than anything he's ever done.
1: And when we come back, we're going to continue with this remarkable story of Tim Samaris. as told by Brantley Hargrove, and the book is called The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaris. And I would urge you to go to the bookstore, pick this up, or just get it off Amazon. And again, it's The Man Who Caught the Storm. And what a writer and what a passion Brantley has for this subject. He himself, a storm chaser. And he himself, deeply captivated by this magic that Mother Nature creates. When we continue, we return with the life of Tim Samaras, his story, here on Our American Story. Hargrove, author of The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaris. At this point, people were beginning to become skeptical of Tim's mission because he kept getting near misses, like what happened in Stratford, Texas, for example.
5: He'd been trying to deploy on several tornadoes, um, you know, the year before, and had got really close. And I think he was learning more and more just how close he needed to be uh, to pull this off. And so in Stratford, Texas in 2003, um, you know, there were, there were all sorts of risks that he was courting that day. I mean, as he maneuvered in front of this, uh, uh, this, to- uh, this oncoming tornado in uh, the Texas panhandle, um, I mean, there was, there was baseball-sized hail coming down. I mean, he, he could easily have been uh, brained by a baseball-sized chunk of hail. I mean, that, that stuff's fatal. Uh, so, he, you know, he jumps out of his minivan uh, with his, uh, you know, he's got his partner in there uh, filming for the scientific record. And there's this tornado in the distance, you know, clearly approaching. It's kind of this sort of multiple vortex circulation uh, moving in at about, you know, probably 30 miles per hour. And so, Tim, uh, you know, he, he drops his, his probe. Uh, you know, they're, they're starting to be able to hear the roar of the tornado. He jumps back in the minivan and they take off and they get overtaken by the, um, you know, the rain curtains and the outer circulation. And they're getting battered by some pretty intense winds. I mean, winds, you know, approaching 100 miles per hour at least. And, I mean, they've got, they've got telephone poles bending into the road and some are falling into the road. He's having to swerve into the oncoming lane of traffic. You know, fortunately, there's nobody out there just to steer clear of these telephone poles. And this is, I think this is the first time at least, you know, that I've heard, and I've watched a bunch of Tim's uh, storm-chasing footage. This is the first time I really heard true fear in his voice. And I think he felt at that moment like he had pushed it way too far, and that you know they were going to pay the consequences. And I mean, he was—he was—he managed to get out, but uh, it was—it was a really close brush.
1: Let's fast forward to Manchester, South Dakota, because this day, June twenty-four, two thousand three, changes Tim's life and it changes meteorology and storm science. Talk about that day.
5: Yeah, this was uh, a day that started out with a lot of frustration. I mean, you know, t- by this point, Tim has been out on the road for several years uh, trying to deploy on these tornadoes with, um, you know, limited success. You know, he's gotten close, but he hasn't gotten that singular uh, deployment that he's been shooting for. And so, you know, he, he gets onto a, a tornado in, um, a w- near Woonsocket, South Dakota, and the, and the dang thing, it keeps to the fields the whole time. Tim can't deploy on a tornado in the fields. He needs it to cross a navigable road, and this thing, you know, it, it dies right before it gets to the first navigable road he could possibly deploy on. So he's, you know, he's pretty dispirited. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's June twenty uh, fourth, I believe, and you know he's getting towards the end of the season. Uh, you know, this is this is very late in tornado season. You know, after this, uh, it looks like there's going to be a high pressure ridge. It's going to deplete all the storm potential after that. Um, but as he's collecting his probes, you know, this, this, this guy who's with him notices um, this, this splash of golden uh, sunlight uh, refracting off of the backside of a storm to the east. And, you know, Tim jumps into the minivan and sees that there's a pretty vigorous radar signature um, within that storm. You know, there's a, there's a hook echo. This could very well be uh, an ongoing tornado. So he gathers up his probes as quickly as he can and then lights out down the highway east toward the storm. And uh, as he approaches, uh, he sees that there is uh, an enormous tornado on the horizon. I mean, in, in my opinion, this is probably the biggest uh, and most violent tornado he's ever, he's ever actually encountered. Uh, this, is, this is the shot he's been waiting for really his whole life. Um, and it's, it's the partners with him, it's his, uh, his brother-in-law, Pat Porter. You know, he actually, he actually asked, are, are we going to deploy on that thing? And Tim's like, damn right. Uh, and so he approaches this thing down the highway. And it's, it's it's closing in on the highway, and he realizes that, uh, that his, you know his approach is all wrong. He can't deploy here. He can't accurately gauge its forward speed, um, its, its its trajectory. Uh, trying to get on that highway in front of that tornado would be almost suicide. So he kind of pauses for a second, uh, then realizes that he's got you know to the north. And this thing's moving off to the northeast. To the north, there's a a good grid of uh, dirt roads. And he doesn't, you know, it's not optimal to be on dirt roads because dirt roads get wet and then they get bogged down. But he's going to give it a shot. So he figures if he heads north on this dirt road uh, and can take the next east dirt road, that he can head the tornado off, drop his probe, and then head north as the tornado moves off to the northeast so basically he's racing the tornado to this intersection you know a mile or so ahead uh, and so he, he he takes off and it's it's a hairy ride i mean the 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 road just turns to cake batter they're fish tailing um and you know at various points they lose sight of the tornado in the rain i mean it's it's chewing through farmhouses there's debris drifting everywhere um, but he gets to this place in the road uh, you know at this intersection drops his probe and and hauls as fast as he can, and uh, the tornado runs over his probe. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a huge moment in, 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 in the world of atmospheric science. You know, the first time uh, we had direct measurements from the core of a violent tornado. I mean, that was just something that uh, the research community wasn't sure that they would ever actually have.
1: And it was this guy, this sort of lone guy. I mean, there were many times people tried to partner in with Tim, but they were going to try and tell him how to do it. And he, he had quite a number of failures in this regard, Brantley. But in the end, he had to do it his way, and he had to rely on his gut and his intuition. He laid that probe down 82 seconds before the tornado struck. That's crazy. But he managed to register the steepest drop in barometric pressure ever recorded, which got him a mention in the Guinness Book of World Records, Brantley, and obviously, it changed his life.
5: Oh yeah, I mean, this was this was his, his name was on the lips of uh, every uh, atmospheric scientist uh, in the world today. I mean, that was a huge moment, and I you know it brought him it brought him a certain amount of fame. I mean, the guy was on uh, you know he he was on the cover of National Geographic. Uh, he was on CNN with Soledad O'Brien. He went on Oprah. I mean, Tim was uh, you know this was this was a big moment, and Tim uh, his life changed profoundly after that.
1: Let's talk about his son, Paul, because ultimately he would join Tim in this life. Uh, talk about the, the relationship between father and son in the book.
5: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think at first, um, you know, the relationship between Tim and Paul was kind of like any father and son relationship in their teen years. I mean, I, I don't think they were incredibly close uh, early on. You know, I mean, I think it was just kind of the way it goes. Uh, Paul was, you know, sort of an introverted young man um, uh, who, uh, you know, wasn't sure exactly what he wanted to do with his life. Um, you know, once he graduated from high school, he sort of drifted to a couple of different options, but, you know, just none of it seemed to stick. Uh, you know, and then he started going out and chasing with Tim. And I think that changed a lot of things for Paul, both personally and, you know, with his relationship with his father. I think it brought them closer together in a way they hadn't been before. And I think for Paul, he found a sort of purpose. You know, he, he discovered uh, photography and, you know, I mean, as it turned out, you know, this this guy, this young man had an incredible eye. I mean, he was just a natural, uh, both with a camera and with a video camera. And so, you know, uh, Paul starts going, uh, you know, out every season with Tim and the crew, you know, and sometimes he'll ride in, in one of the, uh, you know, one of the other cars, you know, if there's if there's isn't room in Tim's truck. But, uh, you know, he, he finds this community and this camaraderie with his father and this group of uh, chasers and researchers that Tim travels with. Uh, and I think it was, you know, I think, it was, I think it was the path Paul had been looking for.
1: And when you get a chance, take a look at some of the photography of Paul Samaras. It's remarkable. I mean, some of the landscapes and some of the nature shots that he captures, especially in the depths of these storms, the lightning, the cloud formations. It's just poetry. He had a gift, no doubt. And when we return, the final episode, the final chapter in this harrowing story, we return with the story of Tim Samaris, as told by Brantley Hargrove. The book, The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaris. More of this remarkable story, here on Our American Story. turn with Brantley Hargrove, the author of The Man Who Caught the Storm, the life of legendary tornado chaser Tim Samaris. And Tim's goal was to get the typical tornado warning time up from about 17 minutes to a full 30 minutes. That was about 13 extra minutes, which of course could mean a lot of saved lives.
5: Yeah, I mean, Tim, what what he was hoping, I think, was that his data his data and not only his data, but the, the data produced by his team you know he had this, he had these other uh, researchers with him who surrounded the tornado with these sedan mounted sensors. So they would sample the environment feeding the tornado basically what you know what what in the environment is making this tornado uh, form what's making it intensify what's making it unravel and so what I think he was hoping was that his data paired with these uh, these other researchers' data uh, could give us a better understanding of what sorts of mechanisms and processes. Uh, are in the environment that lead to these really strong tornadoes. Uh, and, 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 and some days, whenever those tornadoes don't form, what are, what are some of the mechanisms that are failing to fall into place? And so I think he was hopeful that his research could help identify something in the atmosphere on these really bad days. You know, these days like, you know, in 2011 with the Dixie Alley outbreak or, you know, uh, Moore, Oklahoma, 2013. What's, what is it in the sky on these days that, um, you know, makes these tornadoes uh, be so, you know, so intense and have such long tracks. Uh, and that's what his uh, his research group was out there to try to figure out.
1: Let's talk about El Reno, Oklahoma. And by the way, just not too long before El Reno, more Oklahoma tornado which you just mentioned, came through. It was an EF5. And Samaris, well, he thought it was too dangerous a storm to chase. Again, getting at that idea that he was not a reckless man. Let's talk about El Reno, Oklahoma and, and that final day. Of Tim and Paul's life.
5: Well, at that point, um, in 2013, Tim was part of a um, a uh, a lightning research project uh, funded by uh, DARPA, you know, this federal agency, Uh, and they were, you know, essentially just out there with this uh, with this box van that Tim had built. that had all sorts of crazy cameras in it. I mean, super high-speed cameras. You know, even one camera that could take up to a million frames per second of video. They were hoping to understand, you know, some of these fundamental mysteries of lightning um, and and some of the other electromagnetic phenomena that accompany lightning. And so that was their main mission at that point. You know, but they had also brought along um, a a sedan uh, for for side chases. So on that day, uh, May 31st, 2013, they knew that there was going to be a big storm. They were supposed to be set up somewhere far to the north of that storm to be able to photograph the lightning the best place to photograph lightning isn't right up close to the storm it's it's way further to the north um but as the is as, as the is as the the shape of the day kind of came into sharper focus as they began to see just how how powerful this event could be they i think they decided you know hey we can't we can't pass this up we've got to go we've got to go chase this and they probably planned on coming back and, and, and photographing lightning later that evening um but it didn't work out that way so they left their they left their, their their lightning um their lightning photography vehicle uh in northern oklahoma and they drove south uh to towards oklahoma city in the central oklahoma area where where the storm was forecast to begin and uh, they set up um you know just as the as, uh, on the southern cell of the storm system just as it was beginning to intensify they were in perfect position
1: awesome. brantley i want to play for you tim samaris on msnbc on the morning of may 31st 2013 and this would be well a tragic and terrible day for the samaris family he called in not to the weather channel on this particular hit it was a news channel an all-day news channel msnbc let's take a listen to his final appearance on national television. Right now, the uh,
5: skies are fairly clear we do not have storm initiation, but we fully expect storm initiation probably within the next two to three hours, and uh, boy, the ingredients are coming together for a pretty, volatile day.
1: Tim, what are you watching for? What are you chasing right now?
5: Well, at the moment, we are looking for the very special type of storm called a supercell. A supercell is a very violent a storm that is very capable of large hail and pretty destructive tornadoes. And so we're looking for the formation of these particular thunderstorms right now, especially in in central Oklahoma, even along I-40 is kind of where we're currently targeting.
1: Well, and this is is true. It turned into a monster, this storm, 2.5 miles wide, infested with other small tornadoes inside it. Talk about the miscalculations and mistakes Tim might have made here, Brantley. Or were they even mistakes at all? And this was a monster. It turned into a monster. I mean, 2.5 miles wide. at its- And the thing about this tornado, miles per hour. Talk about the miscalculations or the, the mistakes that Tim may have made. Um, and were they even mistakes in the end?
5: Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a tricky question. I think they were mistakes. Um, so Tim, you know, I mean, they, they went out after the storm as they usually would any, any tornado. I mean, they were, they were in perfect position to intercept the storm, but it wasn't a regular storm. It was moving to the Southeast, uh, you know, to the East, uh, you know, I mean, it was, it was sort of all over the place and they were struggling to keep up with it. And, and what was worse is that, you know, for a large part of their chase, um, this monster tornado was rain wrapped. Um, it was completely obscured by rain. They couldn't see what it was doing. Uh, they couldn't see how explosively it was growing and how quickly it was beginning to move. Um, and there were just a lot of things that went wrong along the way, you know, as they were trying to, you know, get in closer to this tornado, you know, at one point, uh, they actually, they thought they were going to be able to take an east turn that would prevent them from having to drive too close to the tornado. But that turned ended up being a dead end. So they had to go even farther south toward this tornado and actually ended up um, traveling into uh, the the outer circulation, into the debris core of this tornado, actually getting hit by some debris. They had to drive then north out of there and then continue along east to try to get ahead of this tornado. And so they were losing ground all the while. Um, And then eventually, you know, after they crossed uh, U.S. Highway 81, that was kind of was sort of one of their last chances to – you know, to get out of the way of this thing, but they kept going because they couldn't see what was happening. I mean, they, they, they could not see the tornado. And they didn't realize by this point that it was, you know, it, it was moving, you know, the, the, the tornado, the larger tornado itself was moving at highway speeds, and it was starting to hook to the north,
3: uh, and that it
5: had this, um, this sub-vortex, this tornado within the tornado. That uh, you know contained some really really powerful winds. Uh, I mean, they were they later found winds in this tornado you know well in excess of 300 miles per hour, uh, and so they couldn't see this thing whenever it whenever it ran them over. Uh, they didn't know that they needed to either stop or turn north to get out of the way. And uh, you know I mean when this when this sub vortex came out of the uh, it would have come out of the east. I mean it just it was the last place where they would have thought a tornado would come at them from, but uh, it caught them it caught them off guard. They just They came up against the wrong tornado at the wrong time in the wrong place.
1: Indeed, I'm going to read from the book. And folks, pick up the book, The Man Who Caught the Storm. It's terrific. Once you start it, you can't put it down. It reads like almost a police procedural. A plot just hurtles along to this really tragic end. In all of these years, Tim has learned to see the ticks and patterns of the vortex. His probes aren't all that have entered the unknown, glimpsing places no one alive had ever seen before. Tim has as well. And at these moments of extremity, it has always been his talent to see when the door is closing. He has always been able to find the seam and to slip through to safety. But this time, it's too late. This is the tornado he can't outrun. Very harrowing. Let's talk about what the finding was because, my goodness, the Chevy Cobalt that he was in was really tossed almost a half a mile away. And a man named Sergeant Doug Girton of the Canadian County Sheriff's Office discovered a car sitting in a field after that tornado had passed. What did he discover, Brantley?
5: Right. Well, he, uh, you know, he was as he was, you know, traveling traveling along this dirt road, uh, looking for, you know, injured people, you know, whatever he could find. Uh, he, he saw this glint of white out in a out in a canola field and you know we went to investigate further it was you know it was a sedan but it was it was just mangled you know it looked like um uh you know it looked like it'd been stripped down basically to the chassis um and uh you know he found he found Tim inside um and uh you know didn't realize at first you know who this guy was but it kind of seemed like he might be a storm chaser there was some kind of gear that was in the car that was synonymous with storm chasers and when he finally pulled Tim's wallet, you know, out of his back pocket and, and saw the name, you know, he finally, you know, realized, you know, who he was, who he was looking at. Because Tim, you know, Doug Gerton had seen uh, uh, Storm Chasers on Discovery Channel before. And so, you know, from that moment on, he, he, he did all of his business with dispatch through his cell phone because, you know, he worried that, you know, if people listening to a scanner pick this up, they would, you know, they would converge on his location. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, when he found Tim, you know, that was officially the first moment that, you know, uh, storm chasers had ever been killed in a tornado, as hard as that is to believe.
1: And I want to thank Brantley Hargrove, who you've been listening to for this entire story, and his book, The Man Who Caught the Storm, The Life of Legendary Tornado Chaser Tim Samaris, is just a remarkable read. Buy it for you and the family. It is not a sad story. Tim died doing what he wanted to do. By the way, his son died too, 25 years old. And the wife wrote this spectacular letter honoring Tim's life and all the work that all these men and women do to protect us and help save lives. And we're going to listen to Tim as we go out talking about the thing he loved to do most, his life story here on Our American Stories.
5: You know I've been doing this for
1: 20 years I enjoy the hell out of it I really do out here watching the, the great clouds the great storms you never know exactly what you're gonna find